Good morning, everyone. This is your host, John, of the Research Review, creating a platform for researchers to create and inspire. I am here with another awesome guest today, Felix. Uh, give us a quick rundown of yourself and what you do. Hello, my name is Felix Latimer. Uh, I was born in Puerto Rico. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and here at Kent State, I am studying environmental and conservation biology with a minor in American Sign Language. Awesome. Now tell us a little bit about what you research. For the summer, I've been working with uh, Dr. Andrea Hayes in her Lobelia project, which is focused on the evolution of Lobelia plants, specifically the different subspecies in North America. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more about what these Lobelia plants are, you know, kind of what they do and what they look like? Yes. Um, they're different colors for many plants, different size, different shaped of leaves, different arrangement of the flowers and the buds. You can identify lobelias by their lips, um, so the way their petals are arranged. There are two on top and three on the bottom, and they kind of are oval or roundish at the end. Some have hair, some have no hair, but they all um, are kind of separated just slightly from the corolla. Yeah, they sound awesome. Now, what are you researching yeah. exactly about them? So, there are about 22 in North America. They can expand uh, and have a range from the bottom of Canada to the top of uh, Mexico. So, for the research that Dr. Case is doing, among other things, um, it's a big project that's been going on for a while, but she's looking at the growth, the evolution, and the flowering times of the plants. But for the portion that I'm assisting with, I've been going through the counties where different kinds of lobelias have been identified. Most people know the larger, more beautiful plants, but the smaller ones and larger ones uh, grow in all kinds of locations, specifically wetlands. Some are more inland, but usually in moist environments. So you can really find them anywhere. But for the project, we've been looking at counties through different BONAP maps, which are Botnia of North America program. And we've been going through to see which ones may have been misidentified to assist in the professors, Dr. Case and Dr. Christopher Blackwood's research on the lobelia. Among the things that she does, it's botany, plant, anatomy, um, evolution. There are many things that she includes in the research. But she's looking at why certain plants, um, certain species don't interbreed, and then which ones came before and which ones came afterwards. Awesome. So, like, what would be some reasons why one species would interbreed with the other one or would make that more common? Does it have to do with kind of like the way it pollinates or mm-hmm. kind of like the evolution of the, of the plant? Or what would play into that? Mm-hmm. Um, there are many things that will affect why plants interbreed. And that's really a big part of the project right now, finding out exactly why. But a lot to do with the growth of the plants depends on the time that they flower. Depending on which species it is, they can grow in one season or they wait like basically two seasons. It depends on how old the plant is and the conditions. And it's really interesting, there's some research Currently, papers published out there about seeds in soils. I forget the term for it exactly, yeah. but when conditions are not right, the plants can stay dormant in soil. And then when it is 
it grows. So there was one that was found southeast of the U.S., but it was found after a bunch of years in the site that was like surveyed yearly for a different research project. But they found that it could be the flowering, it could be the conditions that the plants are in. It's hard to tell. But most of them, like for example, Cardinalis and Syphilitica, they grow in the same locations, like a few feet away. For example, the one site here at Kent has Cardinalis and Syphilitica, but they don't really mix. Now, are those subspecies of the main plant that you're focusing on? Yeah. Okay. And over the years, uh, as in like just botany uh, in general, as different lobelias were discovered, there was discussion about whether they were related, whether some came from another, but right now that isn't definite. So part of Dr. Case's research is having a definite answer on which plants evolved when. Now I know you said you read some previous uh, papers and did literature mm-hmm. review for your research. What's been some of the coolest stuff that you found from that? So there was one paper that I read for the project about plasticity which is a plant's ability to adapt to the conditions in an environment, specifically in their organs. Mm-hmm. So basically just whether a plant grows for a longer period of time during its flowering season and during its phase, whether it's female, male, or it's hermaphrodite portion. I think that was the most interesting because when we did va- voucher analysis, which was my first thing uh, as a part of the, the lab, we saw the plant during only one stage, and you can tell on some of them based on the color of a part of the plant. But uh, reading the paper, they tested the phase that the plant was in, and then they covered the plants for a certain periods of time to encourage pollination versus no pollination to see if the plants would display any different traits in the organs. That was the most interesting because it resulted in, in strange results, kind of. It affected sometimes, and then it did in other times, but it wasn't consistent. And it was just only for one plant, the syphilitica. Mm-hmm. So this is not a gene mutation, but it's an adaptation within the system of the plant itself. Or is it? does it play a well, little bit of both? I'm not sure. Because the, the project was only done for one season of mm-hmm. growth. They used like 100 different plants for each group that they tested, but it wasn't over long periods of time. And the plasticity is more about the appearance on the outside and on the genes. Yeah. So there could be, but I don't know. Yeah, but there definitely needs to be like more research in yes. that area to know for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Now, another thing that's really cool is, so you're an environmental conservation major, correct? Yeah. But you branched out into the field of botany for your research. Mm-hmm. How do you think that better understanding, understanding of how plants operate is going to help you within your environmental conservation career and studies? I would like to work as a policy analyst for the mm-hmm. EPA. And I'm not sure exactly what I want to do, but I think it's broad enough to have backgrounds in different things. And I was originally interested in more soil and agriculture, but I was introduced to Dr. Case another professor, Dr. Blackwood. But I was really interested in botany because plants have, you know, many uses in pharmaceuticals and then just in general because they're native to North America. I think knowing something about how research is done in North American plants would help me understand any data that I would use, hopefully, for my future job. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I found it very helpful to branch out into different departments during my research because I'm a public health major and do public health research, but yet I work for the Department of Geography. And I can kind of see things measured in different ways and I look at things a different way and how we collect data and all that kind of stuff. Do you plan to branch out into any other departments during your undergrad? I think a great thing about environmental and conservation biology versus environmental science courses Mm -hmm. uh, offered here at Kent State, they usually start very similar as a college career. But then when you get to your electives is when things really change. So I've taken a good amount of geology and geography classes. So kind of branching out already. Yeah. But I think it'll be great to branch out to other sciences too. Because I think for conservation, there's so many things that can be done. The more knowledge you have about the world and its different fields, mm-hmm. the better you'll be. Yeah, no, I know you said you wanted to get into um, environmental policy, mm-hmm. right? What kind of stuff would you like to do with that? You know, what kind of policy changes or would you like to, would you like to make? Mm-hmm. I think water quality would be great mm-hmm. to cover. Agricultural regulations and compliance with regulations, whether that is EPA or FDA, will be really interesting. There's so much. I mean, I know Kent State, they have a lab here that studies fat, fat cells, Yeah. in relation to hopefully working on clean meat. So I think that's interesting. Whether policy would help with that, I'm not sure. But I would love to work with agriculture in general. That thing that they're doing in the Kent State lab with the fat cells in the meat, yeah. Do you know any more details about that? That sounds very cool, actually. Yeah. The reason I know about it was because of a student in their lab focusing on that mm-hmm. for the biology awards, like different majors. Yeah. They were there, um, and they mentioned it. But they're just looking at the structure of fat and protein to give clean meat uh, the texture of meat. To make it leaner? No, because it'll be, you know, grown in a lab. So it won't have the, when muscles, you know, contract, Yeah, it, it gives it more texture. And that's why like chicken versus beef has different feel to it. And if it's grown in the lab, it won't have the natural wear and tear mm-hmm. that animals produce. So they were interested to see if they can improve grown meat to feel like real meat. That's cool. How long has this been going on for? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but clean meat... Well, I can uh, backtrack Mm -hmm. to conservation. Conservation really took off during the 60s. During the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of worry about agriculture, whether the population of the U.S. and the world was going to get too big and it wouldn't be able to sustain agricultural uh, demand. Yeah. But then, like, modern agriculture came in with pesticides and factory farming from there a lot of other things like immigration and many politics Mm -hmm. um, affected it you think the pesticides and and factory farming kind of like worsened the problem or fixed it in one area and then caused problems in other areas yeah it definitely affected in positive and negative ways in different areas i mean agriculture modern agriculture was very useful back then because eventually there would have been less food for people right for example one bad and good thing about uh, modern agriculture is how seed are sold mm-hmm. and monoculture which is really affecting soil quality seeds being exclusive to certain companies limits the amount of diversity that different farms can have and that ultimately affects agriculture in general and it makes it more vulnerable for the food supply of countries yeah 
But in relation to clean me, I think it's a great thing because there was the Green Revolution, which was the modern agriculture. And now with clean me, I think it's a more sustainable way of producing meat versus factory farming. I think things like clean me and just renewable energy in general um, in relation to agriculture would be very important to modernizing the urgently needed field of agriculture in the U.S. Yeah. You, did you say the Green Revolution? Yeah, that was just a term for different things that came together during the 50s and 60s okay. that affected how people saw the environment. Uh-huh. Because previously, it was more about, like, exploration and expanding, you know, like, early America, its element. Uh, Nature and Society is a good class that Kent offers. Mm -hmm. It's an introductory class. Uh, It discusses the different histories and timeline and main events that humans and nature had. A big part of it was how people saw the growth of food, how they expanded to make urban cities, and also the manufacturing what, now, what kind of like kickstarted the Green Revolution? And do you think that we're going to need another kickstart for uh, another revolution in, to fix problems like global warming in the near future? Yeah, I think climate change is one of the biggest issues. And part of the reason why I wanted to be a conservation major here was because I thought it was going to be the most practical of my interest. What I intended to say before was that clean me and renewable energy is currently a way to address the issues that the Green Revolution produced while still maintaining the supply that it provided, keeping its benefits but solving its mistake. Yeah. I think there's a need, there has been a need, and we're behind. I definitely agree with you on that. There's a need and we're behind. And you mentioned a lot of problems within the environment right now, such as earlier you said the quality of water, then you were talking about agriculture and then climate change. And you want to work in environmental policy. How do you think that we can change for the better in these areas? Well, currently, at least in the past two weeks, two, three weeks, there's been a resurgence and more of an awareness of the importance of electing officials that have progressive and are concerned about the environment. Mm-hmm. So whether that's like state, uh, federal elections, even locally, uh, I think having maintaining curriculums that focus on environmental science is very important. And then in general, just day-to-day things, infrastructure and technology that we use, like cars and appliances. There's a lot of great certifications when it comes to construction, mm-hmm. but they're not all cohesive. And for example, the lead is a great example of how construction and conservation, general sustainability concepts can be made by one group of people or company, but now apply to other companies. But now currently as like modern day sustainability and construction has worked together, lead has become the standard, but that was due to people coming together and teaching each other about their certifications. There were different kinds of standards from different companies and different agencies. If you were in government and you had direct control over policy, what are some things you would throw out there? You know, specific ideas that you would throw out into the government? Because that does seem like this, that's, the, that's like the place yes. to, influ- to create influence is within the government. Why I mentioned lead was, it's an example of how organizing current ideas and concepts can be very practical, cost-effective, and can be easily taught to current workers mm-hmm. um, because you don't really need new people to be trained and lead when it comes to like a construction team. If they have one person to teach, 
Because I think there's a very bad misconception that sustainability comes at a cost. For example, when people think about food, they think it's going to taste worse or cost more. But eventually, once the infrastructure is built in, I think that's going to work. So yeah, for policy and stuff, mm-hmm. I would love to see more infrastructure. And I think it's great that the current administration has made plans to have charging stations and electric cars yeah. available in the future. But a lot of it is going to be... Like basically on the edge of the timeline and goal that we have to address climate change. Yeah, I know there is a specific timeline. And yeah. oh, there's a big clock in one city. Is it New York? I'm not sure. I'm going to look it up. Please do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and of course, we've grown up with environmental science in schools. And it seems very obvious to us. But I think you should elect people in local and more higher levels of government. Because even though it has been part of our curriculum it doesn't mean that it's gonna be and for example when you think of other issues in government that have been attacked or come under scrutiny mm-hmm. um one of the first places that they tried to change was curriculum and i think right now we're okay but we have to keep advocating for more sustainability and conservation type education classes yeah no i completely agree i, I think i looked up the clock so Metropolitan's digital clock in Manhattan has been programmed to illustrate a critical window for action to prevent the effects of global warming from becoming reversible. I don't know what building it's on exactly, but it's right in the middle of uh, Manhattan, right above a Best Buy and a Nordstrom Rack and a bunch of other shopping stores. Because I think a lot of people have seen that, and that, that, that's a very bold, bold statement that grabs attention. So I think that was a very good idea to advocate. You were talking about infrastructure. The hard part is getting that infrastructure built, and then after we get that stabilized, then cost really isn't that much of an issue. I know for the electric cars and the charging stations, last that I was reading about it, we could not figure out a universal charging cable. So I know some electric cars required a different type of charging station than other types, because we didn't agree on like kind of one universal battery for it. And that's a big thing. And mm-hmm. I know last week, uh, President Biden made a speech in the site of the new factory where they'll be constructing cables. I'm not sure if that's for electric cars yeah. or not. But I think investing in, in renovating or rebuilding factories to produce different kinds of cables. Like some cables are not specifically for one kind of car or a different brand. Mm-hmm. But I think that's an issue to worry about afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> because I think once everyone has more electric cars then we'll solve the issues of consistency so again back to the example of the lead it was great in the beginning but then once it was used in the field the issues came about and then they were able to figure it out and learn from the mistakes so with more practice we'll yeah learn and see so you're saying get the solution out there first and then worry more about the inconsistencies within the infrastructure later because we have we do have a time we have a time right. limit yeah, I think the thing, too, that's great about conservation, it's relatively new as a concept, like, you know, about a few decades, but we know the solutions out there, and there's so many ways of solving the issues. Most of them come from everyday usage, so there's many ways to solve them in all kinds of fields. So I think just implementing and practicing the ones we have come up with will lead to the ones we haven't come up with. For people who aren't in state of influence within the government or something like that you know people just like you or me sitting around talking on a podcast what are some things that we can do in our in our day-to-day lives that help advocate towards environmental conservation i mean there's some simple things like just 
reducing your meat consumption or finding meat substitutes, the clothes you buy. Especially here in the Midwest, buying from local farmers mm-hmm. is great because it reduces, of course, the emissions. But then on bigger scale things, things you invest in, besides buying, but also invest in the future, your the ideas you have, and just advocating. Now, what are some things that Kent State is doing right now? Like, what are some organizations that they have? Or what could colleges and universities be doing differently towards this problem? Most colleges were built before any green certifications were really mm-hmm. in place. But as they've been renovating, they've implemented those certifications like LEED for example and some even use like geothermal energy which is another great way of saving money and being more sustainable individually is by buying or living in places that have been constructed with this new standard yeah uh but Kent State yes so they have you know their master plan going on right now for construction for the past three years three years I think it's like up to 2025 It's like a 10-year total project. I don't know if COVID really stopped it, but you can see the master plan on their website. Okay, so 2018 to 2027. 2018 to 2027. Which is why there's always construction going on here. There'll be construction going on for a long time. There's construction on our walk over to the studio today. Yeah. But you can see solar panels on different regional campuses and some buildings here. Not that many, but a few have them. If you peek out through some tall buildings here on campus, mm-hmm. you can see them. And then there's some that are trying new projects. Like, for example, I know Dr. Blackwood, he worked with a team of students. Um, he was like their advisor on a project for green roofs. Another great thing that's what's, very... What's green roof? There's different kinds, but basically having a roof that reuses natural resources. Mm-hmm. It could be having a garden on top of the roof. Those are cool. I've seen those. They that, just, they look cool too. Yeah, they look cool, but they also help with animal like bird migration. Yeah. And it also keeps the heat wasted and stored in depending on, you know, what season in the building. And then there's also some that you can store water in. Mm-hmm. It's great for filtration if you have like a garden connected to rain barrels. But yeah, they produce a design for a green roof to ultimately, hopefully, mass produce them to have better usage of the wasted resources yeah. that fall on roofs. So you can see that on top of the architecture building. That's one example. Um, and then more project and clubs. There's, of course, the Hinkley Greenhouse mm-hmm. by oh, that's, Cunningham that, Hall. That's right like, across the street, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah, I've been in there before. Yeah, it's a great place. The people are very lovely. The <laughs> conservatory. And um, they have the greenhouse in there. It's been there for a while. And you can just walk in. You can volunteer on Fridays. Do you know what, what time they're looking for volunteers? Uh, I think it's usually like 12 to 5. Okay. But I, you... Uh, I would check. Yeah, definitely something I'm going to look more into. Yeah, and then there's also the Future Environmental Professional Club, which usually meets every other week. And they usually have a guest come in who is in some form of environmental field. Mm -hmm. There's the Sunrise Kent State group, but that's more action-based. It's part of a bigger movement, but it just allows students to protest and voice their concerns about more environmental issues. Mm -hmm. But you said it's more like action-based? Yeah. How often do students get out there and do that kind of stuff? You can find their Instagram page, but usually they met like every other Friday. Okay. Um, A lot of these clubs meet on Fridays, which is a shame. (laughs) But yeah, you can see them. I don't know. They last semester it was for earth day and then they recently you know did also after the roe v wade decision Mm -hmm. yeah but you can find out information on their website the 
master plan for Kensei is called a transform KSU. If you want to learn more about it, it's pretty cool. That's fine. You can get involved with sustainability, the office um, here on campus. They're usually at all events. They have a tent usually. And besides that, there's always guest speakers. Uh, for example, there was recently a park ranger that came in for the geography, I think, yeah. department. But they have them usually like once or twice a semester. Always a mm -hmm. great resource. Guest speakers are always really cool. Yeah. It's because it's very inspiring for them to come in and think, oh, it's going to be me in a few years, yeah. you know, and see what kind of changes are being made to your field as of now while you're in undergrad. Because you get so focused on studies, it kind of sl slips your mind like, oh, I'm going to be out there in the field in a few years, you know, like actually like making a change and making a difference. Another great resource, since you mentioned just studying, mm -hmm. a good way to learn about your field while still being very busy with classes is going to different MFA and BFA defenses or even shows. What are MFA and BFA? You know, like when you graduate the four years versus your oh, yeah, master's. Oh, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Bachelor's, master's. You can listen to their defenses. And then for the more art-based defenses, they have exhibitions and stuff. It's a great way of learning about people who are just a little bit ahead of you in their career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, always good to look up to people who are ahead of you. So, yeah, you're going to get there one day. And it's not that not that far away. And I, I like going to the art ones, like the different art majors, because mm -hmm. they usually have some form of conservation or environmental focus on them. For example, the last one, I think, was the MFA for the communications building. can't remember which major it was, but they had a few examples of marketing for the metro parks. So things like that, whether it's not just a science-based um, way of connecting on campus, having those resources are great. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think there's any more resources that Kent State needs? Or if you were to start, if you were to yeah. start something, you know, what would it be? Well, it doesn't have to be Kent. It could be like Kent, the community, yeah, the state, the country, anything like that is of your idea. Another great thing that Kent has is composting, not on a large scale, but like the dining halls, they mm -hmm. have some kind of program. You could learn more about it through the sustainability office. I haven't, but I would love to because I think having more compost in the buildings themselves, like the dorms would be great. Yeah. And then not too related, but very much important and it's related, is UNICEF. Um, they used to be a chapter here. The last picture I saw was from 2018, I think. It was a pretty big group, but I'm guessing because of COVID and doing the math, most of the students are probably not here anymore. Mm -hmm. But I think having students lead or start up again the project would be great. If there was one more thing you wanted to say to the world with all the knowledge that you have, what would it be? Get involved in politics, <laughs> really. Um, I think people usually are deterred from politics because it seems very outdated mm -hmm. and not in touch with everyone's real world experiences, which I think is very true, which is why people should get involved in politics to fix that. Um, a great resource is the League of Conservation Voters. So if I would say anything, it'll be please be involved in all forms of government. And then also if you want to get more knowledge about individual candidates and current elected officials, they have a list of their voting history and their stances. Mm -hmm. Parting words is just be up to date and try to get involved. Yes, definitely. And you don't have to get directly involved in politics, but vote. Yep. Register to vote. Vote in local elections and federal elections. August 2nd is the primary election day mm -hmm. here. And then general absentee voting begins October 12th for the other election. Make sure you're registered and make sure your opinions are heard. You do make a difference when you vote.
Felix, it has been awesome having you on. This has been a fantastic conversation. Um, And this is our first episode recorded in the brand new studio. So you have been the guest of honor today. So this is, again, John, your host of the Research Review, creating a platform for fellow researchers to inspire. Have a good evening. Peace out.